So back when I was a kid, we would uh, take family trips in a 1983 Buick Regal, um, and the air well, there really was no air conditioning. We'd roll the windows down um, and enjoy our trips wherever we were going. But every time we went on a trip, my dad played the same music every single time. There was this tape, apparently, that came, a tape, yes, I was born in the 1900s, so some of that might be like, wait, a what, a tape? Not like scotch tape, but like a a, a cassette tape, and apparently this cassette tape came with this 1983 Buick Regal, and so it had this cool eagle on it, it said Buick 83 on it, it had this like mixtape of songs that my family would listen to as we moved through the back roads of South Carolina, you know, some of the songs in it, when I listen to them today, it, it's just funny how it takes me back. I'm sure there's some music that maybe your, your parents or your grandparents listened to that you were with, and every time you hear that song, it takes you back. Well, one of those songs, a couple of those songs that were on that, uh, that 1983 Buick cassette tape was Henry Mancini's Gonna Fly Now, which is actually the theme from Rocky, so whenever I hear that. Um, it doesn't get me fired up for a game. It actually makes me think about being halfway car sick, um, going to pick apples or something. Um, Johnny Lee's looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, yes, yeah, there's some heads nodded. Daryl Hall and John Oates' Private Eye. And then, of course, one of my all-time favorite hits, Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Just, just takes me back, takes me back. Well, today we're going to be in the Psalms, and you know we can kind of keep with the theme. The mixtape from Psalms that we're bopping to today um, has been called God's Dog-Eared Songbook. It's, or for, I guess you younger folk, like God's OG Spotify playlist is, is what we're looking at. These are the Psalms of Ascent. They're a collection of 15 Psalms. It's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that for thousands and thousands of years, have been sung and recited and wept through and exclaimed by Jewish pilgrims as they ascended the hills, traveling to, to Jerusalem for the festivals. There were three festivals that they had to go through every, go to every single year. And so they would travel by foot to Jerusalem. And as they would go, they would sing this playlist, this, these psalms that express this full range of emotions, the same type of emotions that we experience all the time human emotions, real emotions. You know, we as followers of Jesus here at Still City Church, we we have so much hope and freedom in Christ's completed work. But we too are pilgrims. We live east of Eden. We long for for something, that that this side of heaven, we're, we're awaiting something. And ultimately, that's Christ's return. But we experience that same perpetual roller coaster of emotions that the Jewish pilgrims did. But sadly, our tolerance for this, this long obedience, the slowness of direction, this patient persistence, isn't quite as high in our microwavable society. I mean, we want the hot pocket, pop it in, slam the door, two minutes. Ding, we're done. Let's eat, baby. That might just be me. But we, so we empathize with the emotions that these Jewish pilgrims, that they experienced. But we struggle 
we struggle to accept the challenge of the posture that they had for the same God that we also serve, the same Yahweh that we pray to. And so that brings us today to start our, our onward series with a psalm of ascent, Psalm 122. So if you would, you can open up Psalm 122 in your Bibles or flip it over in your phone. And if you would, join with me, if you're willing and able, to stand as we read Psalm 122. We posture ourselves here at Still City Church when we read Scripture out loud because we stand on the rock of Scripture. This has been read for thousands and thousands of years. And so we're going to read it with respect as well. Psalm 122, it's a song of a sin, a song of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. An ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And then in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we see David here kind of setting out this familiar framework. He's, he's exclaiming something and pointing to something that he is very familiar with. When, when David was... was um, or when I was reading this and, and thinking about you know, what David's feelings were, it brings to me a memory that I have of a lake house that my grandmother purchased way back in the 50s, 1950s. My dad's dad passed away when he was nine years old. She had three boys. She didn't remarry into a man named Mr. Cooper and, and took on two more kids. Uh, Mr. Cooper passed away. And so now my grandmother was a single mom with five kids. And she's like, I got to do something with them. So she used some money to purchase a piece of property on Lake Murray, which is right outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And the boys themselves actually designed and built the house with some help of some men at the church. And it was a little two-bedroom cabin, you know, and I can talk about it, and I could tell you, you know, and I could send you postcards from this place and reminders and talk about how great it is. But when it all boils down to it, all it is to you is a dinky little house on a mediocre lake in the heat and humidity of South Carolina, central South Carolina, where a family gathered to spend time. It just doesn't mean much. Here, David, something's meaning something. And that's why he exclaims in verse 1, he says, You know, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. I was excited about going to the house of the Lord. That's like someone saying to me, I cannot wait to go to the gym and get my workout done. I just, even saying that, I kind of threw up in my mouth a little bit. Like, I can't, like, 
like, I can't wait to go eat ice cream, yes. But for somebody to say, I can't wait to go to the gym, it's like, what, what, is, what is he talking about? Like, why is this so fun? And we see this, this, this dichotomy begin to happen in verse 1, this I get to versus I have to. And David's like, I get to go to this place that you seemingly have no understanding of. And so as we move into this passage, we see David extremely excited, but where is he going and what is happening? And so we see in the following verses, verses 2 through 5, we see this familiar framework. We see this proclamation of place, we see this proclamation of people, and we see this proclamation of process. It's like David's sending a postcard to us. He's like, hey, I get to go to this place. Where is it? Well, in verse 2 and 3, we see it says, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that is built as a city, as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up. So he know, we know he's going to Jerusalem. And he's excited about going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a center for the Hebrew people. It was the religious center. It was the political center. It was this exciting place to go. They traveled there. They pilgrimed there at least three times a year. And here David is exciting about going. And he's, he's excited about going with these, the, the tribes of people as we see in um, verse, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4. A city that's combat together, verse 4, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. So here, this family reunion is going to happen. Here, he's going with all the people that are also Hebrews that worship Yahweh, the same God that he does. And then we see this process. They're going to worship. They're going to proclaim the God that they serve. And if we kind of take this into an understanding, we realize that worship isn't optional. Our human condition makes it where worship is never optional. You worship something. You always worship something. If you're doing an inventory of your time, your talent, and your treasure, it will tell you, it will point to you with a neon flashing light exactly what you're worshiping. So here, David is saying, worship isn't optional. We're going. I get a chance to go to this place with these people and do this thing. Our worship reflects our identity. It tells us who we are. It tells us who we serve. It could be God, the God of Scripture. It could be a little God of money or power or pleasure or achievement, success, whatever it could be. But we see in verse 4, the second half, there's this ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Worship brings about some level of expectation. If it's not optional, then there's an expectation to it. Here is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving acknowledges who your God is. I am thankful that when I purchase this, I get this rest or or reward or whatever it may be. For David, it's God. I get a chance to go into the city. It's who I am. It's it's, it's what I've come to do. And we see in verse 5, for the thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And so we know here in this place with these people, there's this worship that's set on justice. We realize that justice is this action of levity. It makes the wrong things right. 
when they go to worship, they, they worship this God and they want things to be right. That's why we worship. That's why worship is never optional because it makes things right or so we think it does. Here David is expressing that in verse five. Here in Israel, as I said, it was the, the government center for the nation. So the king sat on the throne. Or at this time, most likely when David is writing this, the, the judge is sitting on the throne and doling out justice and mercy and grace. And we see this peculiar statement, the thrones of the house of David. Which, if we're to peel that part, that's actually a direct reference to Christ. So when we see this, David's going to worship, but he's excited about going to this place that, you know what? If we were to nitpick, just like you could nitpick my lake house, it's like, come on, man, really? Like, the paint's chipping off the wall, it's dusty, there's bugs, there's mosquitoes, there's, it's hot and it's humid, there's no AC. Like, really, you're that excited? We could nitpick David. Like, Jerusalem, really, David? Really? Like, that's the best place you got? Like, I don't know, I'm going to tell you about this place called Hawaii. Like, you can go to Hawaii. Jerusalem and the people? Like, come on. Man, you know forever you Hebrew people have had problems. And y'all be crammed up in this little place that's compact where all the tribes of the Lord are there and everybody's smelling kind of funny. And come on, David, really? And the process of worship, like, isn't it kind of boring? Isn't it kind of tired? Like, shouldn't you refresh this a little bit? And we realize there's, there's got to be something missing. I'm missing something. There's a perspective that I don't have. The, the realness on the inside just isn't equated to what we see from the outside. The realness that David is experiencing on the inside when he gets to go to the house of the Lord. Something's missing. He's excited, but why is everybody else not? David's proclaiming, you don't understand how incredible this is. So we have to ask the question, what are we missing? What are we missing? We'll begin to see that as we move in to the, the second half of 122. We see David say, pray, pray. Well, if we were to kind of pull back the layer on this into the Hebrew, the Hebrew language, we would see where it says ask, ask. Just an everyday word for ask. Hey, man, ask. You got a problem? Ask. You're thinking about something? Ask. You need directions? Ask. We've talked about directions from Yenzers. You know they get kind of crazy when they start to tell directions. Turn left past the giant eagle that hadn't been there for 20 years and go around Heinz Field. There, is it there? Yes, it's still there. It will always be there, right? But ask. Ask. Everyday word. Ask as if you know the person. Here David is proclaiming, I know something you don't know because I know the person to go and ask. What does he ask for? Well, this is where we, we begin to see the Hebrew language kind of play. As, as the Hebrew language is a poetic language, it's this play on words at times. And we see these two words come up. We see peace 
and we see prosper. And if we don't see them in their Hebrew, you don't notice how close they are together. And what happens is they start this like swirl and they start this like this spiral to kind of show what the main focus is. So when we come out, we realize exactly what's happening. We see peace, which is shalom which you'll hear actually in our context, especially over in Squirrel Hill. But you also see prosper, which is shalov. And so you see this play, and then you also see this other word, Jerusalem, which if you say that real slow, it's the city of peace, or Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So you're seeing shalom, shalov, and shalom. And it's this point to, and it's this process, and it's this swirl. As you're starting to do it. And so we have to ask, what is David talking about? So let's talk about peace. What is peace? What is this shalom that we're longing for? I can tell you sometimes to know what something is, you have to know what it's not. All right, so this peace is not always what we understand in our English understanding of peace. It's not this absence of conflict. All right, people talk about the Enneagram and there's that peacemaker in there and they just don't want conflict. That's not this kind of peace. All right, this is not a freedom from disturbance. This is not sending, sending the kids away to the grandparents for the weekend or something like that where you just get to lay in the house and be like, oh God, thank you so much, they're gone. All right, this is not that kind of peace. But that, that kind of peace is nice though. All right, but that's not this kind of peace. What this peace is, this peace is completeness. It's wholeness. It's this restoration of function of how God intended it to be. It's how God initially intended the design to be. So he's saying, ask for the peace of the city of peace. May they prosper who love you. Now we hear prosper or prosperity and we're like, oh man, sometimes because we do have this issue in the American gospel of health and wealth, this prosperity gospel. If you give to the church, you will be blessed. And sadly, I have brethren that will proclaim that from the pulpit. And that's not necessarily what is going on here. That's not what's going on here. When we hear the word prosper, for prosper is not you know, digging into your bank account so it looks like Warren Buffett's. It's not looking like Michael Phelps's trophy room. It's not looking like whoever, I don't, not cool, so I don't really know who's got the most followers, but it's not looking like their follower, their follower list or their influence or whatever it may be. That's not what this prosperity is. Pray for shalom, shalom, which is unfathomable riches and the peace of mind, knowing that we serve a God that has it covered that we are fully secured. Cities would say they are prosperous when no one was attacking them, that they had a strong army that could guard the city from any attacks that may come. That's prosperity. We have a peace of mind, a rest that we can get. We can sleep with both eyes closed knowing that we serve a God that has it handled. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Columbia, We'd have these squalls that would come up, these, these microbursts is what they would call it. And it was this, these massive thunderstorms that at times were stronger than tornadoes and had the power of a hurricane. And it was just incredible. 
And I remember one in particular, I think it was a Tuesday. My dad always had something to do on Tuesday, and, and the, the, the skies were starting to get dark, and, and, and I knew it was, it was coming close to the time that my dad was going to be leaving. And that storm was coming, and it was building as it always seemed to do on those summer days. And my dad ended up, of course, leaving to go. And here I am with me and my mom and my brother, and I am just scared to death. And luckily, whatever my dad was going to got canceled when he got there. And here the storm is raging, the winds are blowing, the lightning is crashing, everything just seems like it's coming down, and my dad walks in the door. Peace. Prosperity. Shalom. Shalom. Now granted, my dad is five foot ten and is about as unathletic as I am. He's not strong, but to me, as a seven-year-old, it was everything. Dad was in the house. I was safe. I was secure. That's what David is proclaiming. I'm excited to go to the house of the Lord, not because of the place, not because of the people, not because of the process, but because of the God that we serve that has always been and always will be. And David has this connection. Remember, it's ask. It's this known entity. Go up to them. You know them. Ask for directions. Ask to pray. Ask for peace. Ask for prosperity. He has this connection that's so deep and so real that he knows the completeness and rest is just over the horizon. It might not be just over the horizon now, but he knows something we don't because he rests in an eternal God. And so he admits, in the, in the midst of the hardness of life, David exclaims, oh, I have peace. I was glad when they said to me, I get to go to worship. I get to go do it. I don't have to go do it. I get to go do it. And some of you might be saying, but, but Pastor Chris, you, you just, you don't get it. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I'm coming from. You, you don't know what it takes for me to enjoy connection with God. And so we can't lie to ourselves and say, man, these, these, these Israelite people, David had it all easy. If we go back and look just two psalms before this, 120, which is the first psalm of ascent, it says, in my trouble I cried to the Lord. I wept in a sorrow state like everything was broken. I cried to the Lord. And then we see in Psalm 122, he screams out, where does my help come from? Where does it come from? I need help. Where does it come from? And he talks about your foot slipping and the sun smiting you. You're like, that, that's, more, that's more characteristic of the life that I live, the frustrations that I have, the hardness that I've experienced. It's Psalm 120 and 121. But here David is saying, I get to go to the house of the Lord. 
I'm the person that limps in every single week. Oh, I'm the one that just has this family issue and this and this and this. But we also have the side of people at times that come in the church that get to go to the house of the Lord that they're like, you know what? I got nothing wrong. I'm going to walk in here. Everything's squared away. Have you seen my Instagram profile? It looks pretty good. I'm good. I don't have any problems. I don't need this. I'm just coming to check off my box to say I went to bless people with my presence. So we build up this self-righteousness or we have this sorrowful side. It just kind of depends on where you fall, whatever it may be. But here David is still proclaiming, I get to go to the house of the Lord. I get to go worship with the family. I get to go be redirected. Now I'll tell you, as a pastor in a church, in an American context, there's some things that, that grieve me about church. You know, it's been said that churches are set up to be a museum of the saints. You know, where we praise this, like, the earthly ones that check the right boxes and have affinities that align with culturally acceptable practices. It's like, yeah, if they can act like that, talk like that, be like that, think like this, do like this, then they're good. We got a problem because when we create museums of the saints, what are we doing? But we're basically looking back at dead people, right? Dead people, dead places, and dead things. That's what we go look at when we talk about museums. So we end up over glorifying the place or over glorifying the people or over glorifying the process. And so we got a problem. And we set up museums for the saints. And then, you know, it's been corrected, though, a little bit. It says, well, church is not a museum for the saints, but it's a hospital for the sinners. You know, because we want to feel good about ourselves that we're actually helping people. There's that therapeutic de- you know, deism, moralistic deism that we fall into at times. It's like, man, if I can just be helpful and do good things for people, then, then I'm good, right? So it's a hospital for sinners, But when we look at it that way a lot of times and we stop there just because it's like, you know, we're just going to put Band-Aids on things and make people feel good about themselves and throw them a couple pieces of medicine here and there and send them on home on their way. We just further perpetuate this downward spiral of self-righteousness. Man, if you just look this way, we're going to, if you're not part of the Museum of the Saints, we'll make sure you get there. We just think that our our sinful ways just need Band-Aids instead of really digging deep into what the problem is. There's a good chance that a lot of people walked in there like that this week, walked in here this week like that. Man, if I can just sing a couple songs, put some in the offering plate, hear a decent sermon and roll out, I'll be good. I'll be good. I was exposed as I was studying this that we need to resolve that it's actually neither a, a museum of the saints or a hospital of sinners, but it's actually a morgue for the dead. 
Joel Hess writes this incredible statement. He says, the church is the strangest of morgues. People, every single one of us, come in, walk in, and realize that we are dead as doornails. But we leave alive. We leave alive. We realize that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If you've confessed Jesus as Lord, there is a point in time that you've come to a realization that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, that you can't earn your way out of this. And we are made alive in Christ Jesus. We are given the life support that we need. The only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that got us there. So many times we stand self-righteously before God and say, I have to go to church. I have to go to the house of the Lord. I have to go and worship. No, we get to. We get to. You know, we are made alive in Christ. We find that our peace is Christ Jesus, as it says in Ephesians 2.14. He offers us this unfathomable riches of rest and confidence in his completed work. We see that in Ephesians 3.8. And we pray, this is what, what Zach and I and David pray for so often, is that this is a place where we can come, and it's a place, a people, and a process of worship that invites you not to put on this like faulty armor of self-righteousness, but it's a place where you can come and deeply, just like David, enjoy connection with God. The one that brings the peace, the one that brings the prosperity, it's a reminder of peace, an orientation towards prosperity, a security and completeness that only God who relentlessly pursues us can provide. So how do we go about doing this? What's some functional things that we can do? So here at Still City Church, we say that our mission is we exist to learn and live the ways of Jesus. That's what we say. That's what we long for. That's what we pray over each of you often, that we exist to learn and live the ways of Jesus. Well, how do you go about doing that? Well, part of a lifestyle of learning and living the ways of Jesus is enjoying connection with God. That's our up orientation. We, we find that in the life of Jesus. He loves spending time with his Father. There's two things that we want you to focus on. This can kind of be a litmus test for you as you, you challenge yourself. How can we change from the I have to to the I get to? How can I get to know this God so I can ask him for peace and understand that and prosperity so I can rest in that? Well, there's two ways you do that. There's discipleship and there's worship. We want you to become a disciple. We want you to become a worshiper kind of a continuum of a process for discipleship. It starts with belief. Your growth as a disciple of Jesus starts with believing in the message of the gospel. That's where it starts, but the beautiful thing is we can go back to that thing constantly. The truth of the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, rose again on the third day to give us access to God is just, a true to, is just as true to me now as when I accepted it however many years ago. It's just as real So we move from believing to learning, to really digging in. 
The word disciple in Greek actually translate as learner. So learning as a follower of Jesus means we humbly seek to grow in our knowledge and wisdom and application of the truths of God. We get to know the God so we can ask him for peace and prosperity. And then from there, we move into this multiplication piece. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. We multiply. We begin to proclaim the good news. We begin to become the one who is discipling. We get a chance to multiply. We're invited into that work at our conversion. So that's disciple, but there's also worshiper. Just like David is proclaiming here, there's this level of worship. Where does worship start? It starts with declaration. There's this public declaration of faith. Typically in the church, it's baptism, where you start with that declaration of faith. I am buried with Christ in, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. Hey, everyone, I'm a follower of Jesus now. But it could also be a declaration of how we change and how we grow. What, what we were worshiping at one point in time, success and status and, and financial security or relationship, a sexual pleasure, whatever it may be, now shifts and we begin to declare with our life something is different now. I worship a God who brings peace and prosperity. And then from that declaration piece, we move into communion. And commune, we begin to commune with God, which is just a beautiful thing that, that I will tell you I am just, I feel like, peeling back the initial layers of. Where communing is, is, is God's loving, actually, revelation of himself to us and then our joyous response to that. I get to rest in who God is. I begin to know who he is. And then I respond to that. And then the most un-American thing ever is what comes out of this, which is rest. Rest, peace, completeness, wholeness, prosperity, security. Oh, man, dad's home. He's got it. We get to rest knowing that we're not causing our own growth, our own self worth and labors, that's not it. That is actually what God is doing. He sustains us. And we can find rest in him and trust in him. Discipleship. Worship. Disciple. Worshiper. Disciple. Worshiper. As we go through this process, it's just this beautiful thing. You know, our culture loves success stories. We celebrate success at the expense of the acknowledgement of the sacrifice and the time and the energy that it took to get there. You know, we see Michael Phelps' 28 gold medals, but we don't see the nearly 50 miles that he swam almost every single week. You know, we, we see the fame and the fortune of our favorite bands. We don't see the rejections that they receive constantly, maybe in up to 100 times of rejections that they got. We taste the deliciousness of the made-to-order brisket, smoked brisket sandwich. We don't see the hours and hours of smoke it took to get it there. I tell you, microwave brisket is disgusting. 
all right? Instant fame is often negative. It's often negative. Viral fame is negative. And I tell you, 28 Olympic medals for a slightly overweight, unathletic guy like me, it's called grand larceny is what it's called, okay? I would be stealing them things. David's excitement for the worship of God that he knew deeply was not microwaved. It wasn't instant. It took a long time. We can go back in the life of David throughout Scripture, and we can see the ups and downs of his life. We can see where he failed. He committed murder. Had an affair. Horrible leader at times. Took things into his own hands at times. Man, (laughs) more like David than what I want to admit. I want the glory, but man, the ups and downs at times. What I want you to see today, kind of the final thing, is is what's coming up. Our, Our enjoyment of God, it was a result of a long journey. A long journey with ourselves and the beautiful thing. Remember, the family was present too with others. We're expected to do this in community. It's discipleship. It's worship. It's discipleship. It's worship. It's discipleship. It's one step in front of the other. It's this long process of obedience and growth and care and edification and challenge and love, whatever it may be. We get to serve a God over a long period of time because he's the same God that has always been and will ever be. So that brings us to an opportunity that that is actually embedded into our faith to do this, something that has been done for 2,000 years. Remember, communing with God is part of the process. That's what we want to see as people commune with God as they worship. Well, there's this thing called communion that we get to do, that we're expected to do. Because this is a reminder, God made us, he kind of knows what we need, so hey, do this in remembrance of me as often as you possibly can. To commune is being reminded, communing is God's loving revelation of himself to us and then our joyful response back to him. And so we believe in communion that it's this symbolic and sanctifying act of faithful obedience. Slow, long, faithful obedience. For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Followers of Jesus are invited to reflect and repent before partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine. We take this time to commune. To be reminded of what God's done for us. The truth of the gospel. Go back to the belief. Go back to the declaration. Be reminded of who he is. Let's take a minute to do that. I know what life is right now for you. How things are. How you are. What your thoughts are where they're wandering to, where your regrets are, where your frustrations, your lack, your, your unmet expectations may be. David says, ask. Sometimes we like to make statements, and that's okay too. 
Lay, what, lay what's ever in your heart out to, to Christ right now. Lord Jesus, I beg you, I ask you to hear the prayers of your people. Hear the celebrations, hear the the exclamations of praise, the declarations of belief, the, the confessions of sin and frustration and whatever it is. Lord, hear their hearts. I ask all this in your name, amen. So as we commune, we're reminded of what Jesus Christ did for us. Points us back to the goodness of who he is. Reminder that, you know, when we look for peace and prosperity, we find that in Christ Jesus and his completed work on the cross. That he broke his body, poured out his blood for it to be finalized. And so that's what we do here. Be reminded of what God's done. And so as Jesus said, as he looked at his disciples, he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Take it, eat it, and do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for for being willing to take on with your body what you did on the cross. Lord, let us not take this lightly. We get a chance to come to the house of the Lord to worship you. Look at his disciples, and he he held up the the goblet of wine, I guess is what it probably was. And he said, hey, this is something we've taken a lot, boys, but this time it's pointing to something different. You'll see in just a little bit, but this is not just wine, but this is actually my blood that will be poured out on your behalf for the sins of the whole world. Take it. Drink it. Remember me as you do it. Lord, the completeness of your work is incredible. Lord, the fact that we can rest in who you are and what you've done. Oh, it's just incredible. Lord, thank you that we get a chance to come before you on a regular basis, that we're not bound to Jerusalem in the center of worship, but Lord, your spirit is alive and it's out and it's free, moving throughout, shaping the hearts of men and women and children. So Lord, let us rest in that. Let us know that it's not an instant thing, that it's a long obedience, discipleship, and worship. Let us learn. Let us learn who you are and what you expect of us so we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we come before you with open hands and open hearts as we proclaim your worship now through song. Let it be done in a way that's pleasing to you. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.